You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Super easy to remember. And this is the word of the Lord. So it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So so, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Amen. You can take a seat. Check, check. Is this on? Hello. Amazing. Well, hey, everyone. If we, uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name is Sam, as, as Brad said, and I don't get to come out to Town Center as often as I would like, and so it's so good to be with you today. So many friends, so many people I love that I can even see sprinkled all throughout here, so good to be with you. Um, since I don't get to be here very often, um, I thought I'd start by showing you a picture of my kids. Is that okay? <laughs> I might be biased, but I actually think I have the cutest kids on the planet. <laughs> so you could pop that picture of them eating ice cream on the screen if you have it. Maybe I won't show you. Let's see if you do. Hey. So Kinsley is four and Harper is one. And uh, by God's grace, they got their mom's looks and my cheeks, which is just (laughs) so much fun. Uh, But we're having lots of fun uh, with them. And uh, while while some of you have met my my daughters, Kinsley and Harper, what you probably don't know is that um, before my girls were born, we actually had a little boy named Jaron. And uh, Jaron was in our biological kid. He's the son of a loose family friend who was going through a really difficult situation, had several kids who were living in different homes. And so she asked Jorley and I, my wife and I, if we would raise Jaron and, and be his parents. And in a lot of ways, the timing was perfect because we had really felt compelled by God to adopt, to foster, to, to, to welcome kids into our home. And so in so many ways, this was an answer to our prayer. And I, I still so vividly remember that, that July day as uh, this spunky little four-year-old kid, Jaron, kind of came into our home and instantly we became parents. We were kind of 20, 23, 24, I think, and, and there was a steep learning curve, but it was so much fun. We loved being his mommy and daddy. We loved Jaron like he was our own kid because he was our kid. As far as we knew, he was going to be with us till he went to college. I imagined I was going to be teaching him how to shave. And, uh, and, you know, giving him a pep talk before his wedding and dealing with all the, the rebellious teenage years. And there were so many special moments with him. I think about the first day of kindergarten. I think about his first ever birthday party that we got to throw for him. We took him to Disneyland. We got to have all, a myriad of park days. But after two years with Jaron, much sooner than we ever thought possible, 
circumstances changed and his relatives in Ontario decided they wanted him back with them. And, and while everything inside of us wanted Jaron to stay, and you know, we prayed to God that, that he would make a way for, for Jaron to stay with us. We wanted to continue to provide a safe and stable home for him. But at the end of the day, there was nothing we could do. We, we felt so powerless. And so after months of advocating for him and trying to fight against the system, Jaron left. One dark September night, we, we, we took him for his last cake pop and hot chocolate at Starbucks. And we dropped him off at a hotel with his relatives from out of, out of town. And, and, and that was it. This family that we'd been building for, for years just vanished before our eyes. And I still so vividly remember driving away that day, just tears welling up in our eyes. And those weeks that followed that day, you know, those months were filled with more tears than I think I've experienced in my entire life combined. That first night especially, Jorley and I just, just wept. We wailed, we cried for hours and hours, barely slept. There was nothing I wouldn't have done to get Jaron back, to be his dad again. The amount of sorrow we felt was insurmountable. We deeply loved him. You know, in, in a lot of ways, and I, I recognize that this sounds dramatic, but in a lot of ways, it actually felt like our, our kid had died. These, these types of moments in life have often been referred to as Gethsemane moments. Moments that are, are filled with this deep, anguish, this despair, these really difficult circumstances where you come to the end of yourself and maybe you actually don't even know how you're going to get a mile further. Have you ever had a moment like that in life? A time in your life that just felt so incredibly hopeless, where everything felt lost. You know, I've come to realize that maybe one of the biggest questions that we have to ask ourselves as we nuance through the Christian life, as we walk with Jesus, is how will we handle pain and disappointment well? especially as we grow older, but in so many cases, people are experiencing pain at such a young age. And regardless of when, for all of us at some point and in some capacity, pain and suffering will come knocking at our door. And no one's immune. The question is, how will we handle life when it doesn't go the way we think it should or the way that we thought that it would? When it doesn't go kind of all up and to the right or Instagrammable by any sense of the word? How do we deal with our Gethsemanes? In Matthew chapter 26, the text that was just read for us a moment ago, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this word Gethsemane is literally translated to olive press. Gethsemane was this beautiful garden just outside the walls of Jerusalem where olives would grow on olive trees and then they'd be harvested and, and, and turned to oil. I had the opportunity to go to Israel not too long ago, just a few months ago with Pastor Mark and some of the rest of our team, and it was incredible. And, and I had an opportunity to go to this exact place, to, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was filled with dozens and dozens of olive trees. It was beautiful. In the ancient times, there was actually an olive press right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the olives would be picked off the trees and then they would be crushed. They'd be squeezed. They'd go under this intense pressure. And through the process, they would, they would produce this beautiful olive oil, this incredible fragrance. And in a lot of ways, the, the location itself, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the setting of Matthew 26 serves as a symbolism for what Jesus was about to do as he would experience the cross. Like olives in the olive press, he would be, he'd undergo intense pressure. He'd be crushed and he would release his oil so to speak, his life for you and for me and for the world. And so here's what I want to do today. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to behold Jesus. 
to stand in awe of this Jesus in the garden in Gethsemane. And as we do, as we look to Jesus, I want to I take, take a look at what we can learn about how to handle our Gethsemane moments. Because there's so much that we can glean from looking to Jesus as our archetype for how to navigate dark and tumultuous times. Jesus as our model, our focus. So that's where we're going to go today. Jesus' response in Gethsemane. But as I was studying this last week, one of the things I realized is that Jesus' response in Gethsemane isn't the only response that we find to Gethsemane in our text. There's all these kind of surrounding characters who respond in a myriad of different ways, very natural human ways. Psychologists have popularized the, the, a term, a phrase, for how many people deal with difficult times. They commonly re- re- refer to it, maybe you've heard it before, as, as fight or flight. That We have these fight or flight instincts when we, we're confronted with difficult times. And we see both of those surface in the story. For example, how does Peter respond? Peter, Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends, his, his disciples, how does he respond in Gethsemane in chapter 26 as Judas the betrayer shows up and this angry mob surrounds Jesus? He responds with a fight instinct. He chops off the guy's ear in the crowd. His instinct is to fight. And while most of us don't carry around a sword and probably wouldn't cut off an ear or a small limb in a rage moment, I would imagine there's probably a group of people here who can absolutely kind of connect with Peter's response to tragedy and hard time, this instinct to fight, to lean in to the chaos. When hard stuff comes at you, maybe you double down and you just face it head on, like, let's go, come at me, bro. And maybe you don't even think through it first, maybe like Peter who just whips out his sword and chops you know, I was wondering as I was looking at this moment of, of maybe, um, maybe Peter, maybe for Peter, Jesus' teaching on nonviolence and, and murder had challenged and convicted him enough that he wasn't going to go for the jugular, <laughs> but he would go for the ear. He has this instinct to fight. Another response we see in the text is this instinct to flight. You know, as Jesus is bound and arrested and being taken from the garden in verse 56, he says that all the disciples deserted him and fled. All his friends left. I think this is an incredibly common response to Gethsemane moments, doing whatever we can to just escape the pain, escape the hard things that are going on, escapism. It's this instinct to try to get away from whatever it is that's hurting us or or to get away from the negative emotions that are welling up inside our bodies. And so to do so, many people, especially in the modern age, they self-medicate with with substances or mindless scrolling or binging on Netflix or relationships or sexual encounters or with food, something, anything to numb the pain or at least to make us forget for a moment what it is that's going on beneath the surface. It's escapism or flight instincts. But how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to Gethsemane? Well, first, he allows himself to feel. He takes stock of the emotions that are going on within his body. Right off the top, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Another Bible translation says, I feel so bad I could die. Jesus allows himself to feel. A few verses later, it says he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Just notice the level of drama in the scene. As he experiences this agony, he falls to the ground and cries to the Father. I want you to catch this, that Jesus, our truest model of humanity, our rabbi, our teacher, the greatest archetype for the Christian life, he was not happy all the time. There there were times that he felt these really real emotions of sadness or sorrow, and in this moment, he felt troubled. I think it's safe to conclude that Jesus, maybe, maybe in the garden in that moment, he actually even experienced depression. 
as he said, I feel so bad I could die. And this is what I appreciate so much about this text, that it proves that to experience sadness or sorrow or depression, to feel anxiety, it's not sin. It's part and parcel with the human condition. But I don't think most of us, I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us aren't actually very good at allowing ourselves to feel. We busy ourselves. We busy our brains with, with, with all sorts of things to keep us going so that we don't have to feel, especially us as men. And in many cases, Christian cultures only perpetuated this problem where in a lot of churches, there's this expectation that you come with your happy-go-lucky self on. You show up to church and you have your extroverted self on and there's this cultural expectation that you're happy and smiley and good all the time because Jesus rose from the grave and heaven's your home and so put a smile on your face. And so oftentimes people start to stuff down the things they're really feeling and experiencing because it doesn't align with the vision of Christianity and the Christian life that's being presented. One of only prosperity and success and joy. When you're surrounded by people who never seem to be going through anything real, when you see families come to church who seem to be in there always, they have this image of perfection, at least for the 90 minutes or so that we're together on a Sunday morning, you can easily start to believe that there's something wrong with you if you're actually going through anything real or dark or really experiencing any sort of emotions. You know, sometimes you're as happy as the people around you seem to be, but sometimes you're not. Sometimes life actually just sucks. And then we come to this text and we see Jesus overcome with grief experiencing these very real emotions. See, I think this text gives us permission to not be okay all the time. Maybe the solution to Gethsemane isn't to pretend that everything's okay when it's not, but actually to allow ourselves to feel, to take stock of, our, our, of how a situation or a conversation has affected us, to actually unpack the dynamics of our family of origin and how that shaped the person that we've become, both good and bad, to actually identify what's going on beneath the surface. And over time, often with the help of a therapist or a friend who's incredible at listening, allowing Jesus to bring healing. But it actually starts with honesty. Like, how am I actually doing? What emotions am I feeling? It's okay to not always be okay. In the midst of Gethsemane, Jesus, he allows himself to feel. And then secondly, he invites his closest friends to be with him. Look at, look at verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You know, as Jesus encounters Gethsemane, probably his hardest day to date at that point, he surrounded himself with community. He surrounded himself with friends. Here's Jesus He's overwhelmed with sorrow. He's deeply troubled. And he says to his closest friends, I need you with me. I need you to help me shoulder this emotional load. That's not how most of us envision Jesus. And I think this is a side point, but for years, Bible scholars have used this exact text to point to the authenticity of scripture in the Christian life. Because if we're trying to fabricate the story, if Christians were just simply making this stuff up about Jesus and who he claimed to be, you would omit this part of the story. Because if you're trying to present Jesus as God over all of creation, you would never want the story of Gethsemane to be in there because it shows Jesus as weak and needy. You know, if Jesus' disciples were just making this stuff up, you would, you would strip this story from the biographies because as God, you wanted to appear strong and powerful, not weak and in need of his friends in order to make it through the day. And yet in Jesus, we find this, the beauty of it and that he's fully God, but he's also fully human one who's like us, who 
who needs deep and true friendships around him as he encounters Gethsemane. Last week, I was, uh, I was chatting with someone from our church who was going through a really difficult time, a failed relationships some depression and some spiritually oppressive stuff. And as we talked, I, I said, who have you been going through this with? Who have you been walking through? What's your community? Who are you sharing this with? And her response was, no one. And, and this is a girl that has tons of friends, always has people around her. And I said, why? Why haven't you shared this with your, with your friends, with the people I always see you with, with your community? And she said, I don't know, I, I guess I just didn't want to bum them out. And I was so sad by that response because we actually need each other. You were not meant to do life alone. The burden's actually too heavy to carry. Even Jesus brought his friends into the garden, into Gethsemane with him. But we like to be the strong ones, or at least perceived as the strong ones. And so most of us, we like to be private with our stuff, and we'd rather go through dark times alone, because, either because of our pride and, and having this facade of strength, or maybe because of a desire to not bother anyone. Maybe it's a combination of the two. But can I just say, as the church, we are here to bear each other's burdens, to put an arm around a person who's down and to lift them up and say, you can do this. We'll get through this together. And if you're struggling through a lap of the race, is to, to be picked up and carried for a lap. We make it through life together. And that can only, be, that can only happen if we get past the facade of, of good. I'm good. And actually allow the people around us in on what's going on. Hey, you don't have to be honest with everyone. It's probably actually not good to be that level of honest with everyone, but we all need that Peter, James, and John, so to speak, those people who are around us who can weather the storm alongside us, who we can invite into the real stuff of life, who can shoulder the emotional load. So Jesus brings his friends with him. But how do they do? How do his friends do at moral support and being prayer partners? They fall asleep. Jesus finds them asleep instead of praying. Look at verse 40. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Uh, when I was in high school, I had this amazing youth pastor. His name was Shane, Pastor Shane. And one of the things I really appreciated about Pastor Shane was, was the way he led our youth ministry. He really cultivated in me, he really cultivated in, in the students of our, our youth ministry this, this passion for prayer and intimacy with God. And as a result, one of the things that that's, he started pretty early on when he came to our church was this Tuesday night prayer and worship gathering. It was, it was this pretty free-flowing time of singing and a mix of corporate and personal prayer for youth and young adults in our church. And as a grade 8 kid, I went to this prayer gathering on Tuesday nights for two main reasons. First, I, uh, I actually really did love God. I had this deep passion for God as a very young person. And I was so inspired seeing the, 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 the older students in our school crying out to God for revival crying out to God for our schools and the neighborhood, that God would reach our friends. And so I did go out of a passion for God, but the other reason that I went is because afterwards, about 90 minutes after this prayer and worship gathering, once it finished, we would all go to this, uh, this family restaurant in our small town called Patty O'Neill's because at Patty O'Neill's on Tuesday night was 29 cent wing night, <laughs> which meant at that price, I could have about 25 to 30 honey garlic wings and a Diet Coke. <laughs> because everyone knows that if you order a Diet Coke with your honey garlic wings, it cancels out the calories in the sauce. But back to the prayer gathering. Almost every week as we moved into this time of personal prayer, I would lie face down on these super soft, awesome, comfortable, green, stackable chairs. And every week, I would fall asleep, like snoring, drooling. And so someone would nudge me around 9 o'clock, like, dude, we're going for wings. Are you coming or not? And I'd jump up, and I'd hop in someone's car, and I'd make it to wings. 
But every Tuesday night I fell asleep. And so I can totally relate to Jesus' disciples in this moment. But here's what I love. That Jesus wants them with him, even though they continue to fail and disappoint him. That he's not expecting perfection from them. He's not expecting them to be God. He wants them with him. He loves them, even though they continually drift off task and fall asleep on the job. Imperfect as they were, failed and flawed and sleepy as they may have been, Jesus still wanted them to be with him. And he wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. Though we continue to fail and fall short, he calls us friends. He wants us to be with him. The last observation about Jesus in Gethsemane that I want to look at this morning, I want to look at Jesus' prayer. That he approaches the Father honestly and unfiltered. In Gethsemane, we find this, this, this man of sorrows, one who's acquainted with grief, who's fully undone emotionally before God. He brings it all before the Father in prayer. No filter, no cleaned up version of himself, no sanitized version. He brings all of his emotions to God. I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You know, what does your prayer life look like? Do you have that kind of honesty and raw transparency with God? I think a lot of Christians struggle with prayer and find it boring because they come to prayer with the same level of transparency that they come to a stranger or an acquaintance, where you're asked how you're doing and the answer is always good. But just like Adam and Eve who, who hid themselves from God with the fig leaf, so often we hide what's really going on from God. We hide from God and we hide usually from the people around us and sometimes we even hide what's going on from ourselves. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus come to the Father with all of his emotions and honesty. I'm sad. I'm troubled. It's too much to bear. Here's something that I think we often forget. That God knows what we're feeling, whether or not we tell him. By not being honest with God about our anger or our frustration or our confusion, you know, we're not hiding it from him. He knows our every thought. We're just robbing ourselves from relationship with him along the way. Deep relationship with the loving Father who wants to be with us in the midst of our sorrow. Like, do you know that it's actually okay to, to bring your emotions to God and to be angry? To yell at God? To express your frustration or your confusion or your pain to him? Isn't that what we see in the Psalms? You know, over and over again, we see the psalmist say something to the effect of, my enemies are surrounding me. My life sucks. Like, it really sucks right now. I thought you were on my side. What's going on, God? Have you forgotten your promises to me? They usually end in submission, but they start with raw, unfiltered emotion. And guess what? God can take it. He wants to hear. He wants you just as you are. It's okay to yell into a pillow. It's okay to, to shout into an open field. Jesus brings his emotions, brings these things to the Father. He also brings his desires. Look at verse 39. He says, my Father, he says, if it's possible, make this cup be taken from me. The phrase, this cup, was a first century idiom that it, it represented a person's allotment of pain or suffering in life. In modern terms, it would maybe be, be like saying, this hand that we've been dealt or this, this burden I have to bear. And so Jesus is saying about the cross, can you do it another way? Can you take this hand I've been dealt? Can you take this cup? Take it away. It feels too heavy to bear. This is a moment where we actually see Jesus experience unanswered prayer. Where he asks the father to take this cup from him. He brings his desires and the betrayer still comes. Did you catch that? In Gethsemane, Jesus experiences unanswered prayer. And so that means that every time that, that you cry out to God and ask for something, for healing, 
for restoration in a relationship, for something that you want or something that you need. Jesus knows what that feels like when it doesn't happen. He brought his desires to the Father in prayer, not what he thought he should desire, but what he actually felt in that moment. And through prayer, you see his deepest desires, the desire beneath the desire, begin to surface. You know, I started this talk talking about uh, Jaron, about how he left our home after a few years of how painful that was, the experience that we, that we experienced as a result. But a lot of the pain that we experienced was because we prayed and prayed and cried out to God and we did everything in our power to keep Jaron because we felt like that was what God was asking us to do. Our, our desire was for Jaron to stay and we brought that before the Lord. We asked him in prayer, but at the end of the day, Jaron still left. I remember this one distinct moment. It was about, it was about a week before he, he left where after days of trying to figure out how we could do this and what this could look like and and we just, we, we knew the answer. We knew he was going to go. And we had no choice but to submit him to the will of the Father. And I realized through that process that while my desire in that moment was for Jaron to stay with us his whole life, my deepest desire, actually the desire beneath that desire, was just that he would be loved, that he'd be cared for, that he'd be safe, that he'd grow up to know Jesus. And I had to ask myself, do I actually trust God enough to let Jaron go? Do I believe that Jesus actually loves Jaron more than I do? And so we entrusted our little boy into the sovereign hands of God. Even though we didn't understand, we just chose to trust. It wasn't easy, it was actually incredibly hard. But we've got, watched God be so faithful even in the midst of that great sorrow and confusion. And that's what we see Jesus do in the garden. He submits to the will of the Father. Look specifically at the second half of verse 39. It says, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. It's this deep trust. In other words, I trust that your will is ultimately what's good and right and beautiful. I trust that you are sovereign and in control and that you're working in the midst of the brokenness like a master artist. You're, you're, you're making beauty from ashes. Three times in the Gethsemane text, we see Jesus repeat that prayer of surrender. Your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. This is such an important part of prayer. Surrendering control. Trusting God to be God. That kind of prayer actually changes us. It changes our whole perspective. In a lot of ways, it takes the, the weight and the pressure off of our shoulders. We contend. We ask. We bring our requests before God, and then we trust that he is God and, and we are not. And because of his track record, because he's been faithful time and time again, all throughout the ages, we can trust him. That his ways are higher than our ways and that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And sometimes what we ask for, what we think we need, isn't actually what's best. He always has our best intentions at heart. I love the way that Tim Keller talked about this. He said, God always answers our prayer. God always answers our prayer. He either gives us what we ask for or he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows. We can trust him in the midst of Gethsemane. Hey, as we close, let me just say this. In this story in the garden, we see this, this beautiful template of Jesus enduring hardship, how to live well through, through hard times as we take stock of our emotions and, and, and allow ourselves to feel, as we, surrender, as, as we surround ourselves with, with community, as we surrender to God in prayer. And that's beautiful, and, and it's so helpful to have that framework that we see in Jesus. But, but the greatest hope that we have in the midst of suffering isn't actually Jesus in Gethsemane at all. 
It's what he do next that makes all the difference. What Gethsemane points to. See, in the hours to come, Jesus, he would taste the cup of suffering. He'd be turned over to Herod and then to Pontius Pilate and he'd be beaten and bruised and humiliated and scorned and he'd be hung up on a Roman cross where he would die in our place. Jesus would would take the punishment on himself that was due us because of our sin. Man, let, let us behold. Let's stand in awe of this man of sorrows who weeps in the garden, but he doesn't stop there for the joy that was set before him. He endures the cross. His life for ours. You know what the greatest hope in the midst of Gethsemane moments, in the midst of hard times is? That because of what Jesus has done, because of his great sacrifice, even the worst thing that happens to you in life won't be the last thing. That because of what Jesus did on the cross, death and all its friends have been defeated. See, the hope of the gospel is this, that God loves us so much that he would come and save us. That that he would live this perfect life that he would die in our place and rise to new life, ushering in the kingdom of God and offering life to anyone who who believes. We have hope because of Jesus, because Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We have hope because we know that the momentary afflictions that we face, though very real and hard and painful as they are, they won't last forever. That even death, it's not the end. Even the worst thing that happens to you in life will not be the last thing. To those who put their hope in Jesus, he offers life. And then in Revelation 22, at the very end of the Bible, the very last book of the Bible, we see this beautiful picture of the age to come. And it's actually described as a garden. Except unlike Gethsemane, in this garden, there's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. Every tear has been wiped away. All things have been made new. That's the picture we get of heaven. That's the picture we get of the age to come, a garden. We're a garden-like city where, where we'll forever be in the presence of Jesus and we experience his perfect peace for all of eternity. So in the quietness of this moment, I just want to invite you to, to take a moment and, and we're going to kind of keep a, a quiet, quiet moment for just a second. Let's just behold Jesus together. Let's just stand in awe of him to say thank you to Jesus for all he's done, that he didn't stop at the garden, but for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross. Let's just sit in that moment for a moment and remember him. If you're, uh, if you're here today and you don't know this, this Jesus that we've been talking about, but you want this hope that I've been sharing about, that we were singing about earlier, maybe you need hope right now. Maybe you've been searching. Can I just say it's, it's Jesus that you've been looking for? And if you align your life with him, if you give him your allegiance, surrender to him, you too can have the hope that he offers. You too can have hope in the midst of Gethsemane. If that's where you're at, if that's you, Scripture says that coming to Jesus is as simple as as believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that that God raised him from the dead, confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you're saved. And this same hope that we have in Jesus can be yours as well.
And so as we come to the, to the close of our service, there's going to be some prayer people down here. And I wonder if there might be some people here today who are going through, who are in the midst of great challenge and sorrow, difficulty, Gethsemane, so to speak. Man, there's some trusted people in our church who would love to pray with you. Maybe you're, you're new to faith. Maybe you stumbled in here, you saw a sign or a friend invited you, and you are, you know, you're, you're interested in this Jesus. You want to give your life to him. They would love to pray with you and help you to give your life to Jesus. So I'm going to pray right now as we kind of come to a close. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great sacrifice for us. Thank you for this model that we see in the garden as you deal with great hardship and, 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 and suffering. But as you, as you do it well, as you lead through it and go ultimately to the cross to pay a price for our sins that we can live. So I pray for my friends who are in the room who are struggling through Gethsemane right now. Would you give them the courage to surround themselves with community, to tell someone, to walk with a brother or sister? Would you be so present with them in the midst of their suffering? I also pray for those who are here today who are interested, are intrigued, are curious about this Jesus we've been talking to. Pray that you would lead them to truth, that you would lead them to yourself, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.